Well, this Saturday is October 31st, which I'm sure you know as Halloween. But did you know that October 31st also marks another holiday? It's also known as Reformation Day. Commemorating the day when in 1517 Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, protesting the unbiblical abuses of the Catholic Church. And that event sparked what became known as the Protestant Reformation. And we're here today as spiritual descendants from that Reformation. Many churches transfer the holiday of Reformation Day to the Sunday before, so that would make today Reformation Sunday. So just for the fun of it, I guess it's fitting that I'll give you at least an introduction using an illustration from the Reformation. I'll tell you just a little bit about the English Reformation. Henry VIII was king in England, and he wanted to divorce his wife, but the Catholic Church would not let him. So he started to break away from the Catholic Church with the Church of England, not so much for religious reasons, but more for political reasons. But that gave way for some of the reformers to gain ground in England. After Henry died, his son Edward VI became king. He was raised a Protestant, and in his reign, Protestant reforms really swept over England. They started dropping a lot of this Catholic baggage. They denied purgatory and Mary worship. They lifted celibacy for clergy. And they redefined communion in a biblical manner such that the the bread and the cup were not literally the body and blood of Jesus, which were then re-sacrificed for sins. Many good reforms happened in Edward's years. But Edward died in 1553. And although he didn't want this, his half-sister Mary became queen. She took over. And she was a staunch Roman Catholic. And she completely undid all of his reforms. Even worse, over her five-year reign, she had over 280 Protestants burned at the stake. And for this, she gained the name Bloody Mary. Of note were three men in particular, Bishops Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley and also Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. These men were arrested and tried for heresy for teaching against Catholic doctrine. And of course, they were found guilty because they're not going to recant their faith in Christ and the true gospel. And Latimer and Ridley would be executed first. Cranmer was made to watch from prison. We'll tell his story some other time, Cranmer. But on October 16th, 1555, these two men were marched to the stake to be burned. Ridley's brother, though, he brought a bag and he tied a bag around his neck. And Ridley asked, well, what, what's the bag? And his brother said, gunpowder. Obviously meant to quicken the death. Ridley requested a bag for Latimer as well. As the wood was placed around their feet and set on fire, Latimer, who's 68 years old, he gave his final words to Ridley and he famously said this, quote, he said, be of good cheer and play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. End quote. Latimer died quickly, but Ridley did not. The wood was arranged such that it burned underneath. The flames didn't rise up, so he, his lower body was burned, but he was still alive. And finally, a guard moved the wood. The flames fanned up. He leaned over, and when they hit the bag, gunpowder, it was all over. Although this was a tragic atrocity, their martyrdom was still used by God for, as 
Tertullian, the, the church father, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Ridley, Latimer, and hundreds of others, they lost their lives for the sake of Christ and the gospel. But what are they going to do? They could not deny their master. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Yet through their display of true faith, even unto death, God brought countless thousands to salvation in England through that Reformation. And it did. From their candle, it spread like wildfire. And we're here today, in some measure, because of them. Now, I know this is a rather somber introduction, but it's important that you know the church's history. And in a way, our lineage, which traces back through the Reformation to the early church, to Christ himself. So many take the faith for granted, but the martyrs of the church, they displayed what true discipleship looked like. They, they gave their life to Christ in more ways than one. Now, all that being said, there's actually another reason I wanted to tell you the story about Ridley and Latimer this morning. I didn't tell you why they were killed. And do you know the main reason? The main reason is, is over their view of the Lord's Supper. The Catholics teach what's called transubstantiation, which teaches that, that the bread and the wine, they literally turn into, in the Mass, the, the physical body and blood of Jesus, and then they're re-sacrificed, gaining merit for those who participate. Ridley and Latimer, though, they totally denied this, rightly so. It's a very false, unbiblical teaching. Instead, they taught the Lord's Supper. It's a time where you offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God. But for that view, they were killed. And it's really remarkable to think that's why they were killed. And it's also so ironic, especially given the, the nature of the Lord's Supper. I mean, when Jesus gave this ordinance to the church, he envisioned his future disciples sharing this together, remembering him. I'm sure the last thing he wanted was for his future so-called disciples to be killing one another over how they viewed the meal. Yet, believe it or not, hundreds of Christians were killed by the Catholic Church during the Reformation simply because they opposed the unbiblical Catholic sacramental view of communion. When many Christians hear this, they're shocked because today, Lord's Supper is not that big a deal. That's a whole other problem. Most Christians, they don't think twice about the Lord's Supper. And they're, they're surely not going to die over it. I mean, it's this little ritual that we Christians do, and it's, it's not that big of a deal. And during communion, it seems more people examine their watches than their hearts. And they worry more about football or lunch than what the purpose of the time is all about. At the very least, so I hope you can learn a lesson from history that the truth matters. The gospel matters, and... The Lord's Supper, which is tied to the gospel, it matters. It's not, it's not worth killing over, but it is worth dying over. This morning we come to the passage in Mark chapter 14 where Jesus institutes this Lord's Supper. And I hope today we can recapture what this is all about. The Lord's Supper, it's, it's so important, yet there's still a lot of misunderstanding and false teaching out there surrounding it. Again, it's not worth killing over, but it is worth fighting for. This is a very significant ordinance that Jesus left for us, the church, to observe until he comes. So we, we need to get it right. It's not just something we do. It's not just some little ritual. And it's not to be observed without knowing what it's all about. The last thing God wants is for you to, to go through the motions with your heart detached from the meaning and the purpose behind 
what it's all about. So today we need to study this. We need to figure out what was Jesus leaving behind for us? What, are, what is this all about? And we need to get it right. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're now here. We're in the final hours of Christ's life. This is the night right before his arrest, his trial the next morning. As we saw last time, he wanted to have this final meal with his disciples. Why? Well, he wanted, he wanted to give them some final instructions. And those are recorded in John 13 through 16. But of special importance was this meal itself. Jesus was going to transform this Passover meal to introduce God's new covenant ministry. Through Jesus, through his work on the cross, God was doing something new. And Jesus used some bread and some wine to signify what what that was. And the fact that he wanted this remembered and observed for all time by his future disciples until he returned shows that we're, we're dealing with something pretty close to the heart of the gospel. If you get this right, you have to get the meaning of his life right and the meaning of his death right. And that's what we need to do this morning. Mark 14, and to get things started, in case you're not familiar, let's, let's read the passage through. See what we're talking about here. Mark 14, verses 22 through 26. Follow along, I'll read it for you. Mark 14, verse 22. It says, while they were eating, he took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And surely these words are familiar to you, but do you really grasp their significance? It's missed by many. Many don't get what Jesus was doing, what he was really setting up here, what his words mean. And the parallel in Luke adds that we are to remember this. This has a real bearing on our lives. This is something we are supposed to do, something we are supposed to remember. But what exactly is that? What is Jesus teaching with the bread and the wine? What is he trying to get across? We have to be careful there. What are we supposed to be remembering exactly here? Well, this certainly is a watershed passage in, in the Bible and in Mark's gospel. When it comes to the identity and the mission of Jesus, and it even has a real bearing on our identity and our mission. So, again, we, we need to spend the time, we need to get this right, find out exactly what he was saying. Without further ado, let's, let's dive in and let's start with the bread. Let's try and figure out what that's all about, the bread. Number one, understanding the bread. We'll start here, point number one, understanding the bread. And it's back in verse 22. Where it says, while they were eating, he took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body. Now, I'm sorry, let me give you a little background behind this meal. It's very clear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus and the disciples, they're observing a Passover meal. You remember the roots of the Passover? The tenth and final plague that God sent upon the land of Egypt before the Exodus was the death of the firstborn where all the firstborn in the land would die. But the sons of Israel could be redeemed if they took an unblemished lamb, sacrificed it, and took the blood of the lamb and put it on their doorpost, 
And when the angel of the Lord came that night and he saw the blood, Exodus 12.13 says the blood would be a sign to the angel who would then pass over that house. And in that way, the sons of Israel would be redeemed. They would be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, which we know, obvious parallels to Christ. We'll see that later. This is such an important and defining moment for Israel that afterward, God commanded that it never be forgotten. He instituted a memorial meal commemorating the Passover and God's deliverance of Israel. And all the people in all future generations were to celebrate this once a year, remembering what God did for them. So this is the meal that Jesus and the disciples are eating right now. Well, what's it like, though? What did they actually do? What does this meal consist of? Back in the Old Testament, God gave some specific instructions, like have lamb, some bitter herbs, unleavened bread. Over time, the Jews added tradition. They expanded this meal, which is still known today as a Passover Seder. And there's good reason to believe that Jesus and his disciples were observing this traditional Passover Seder. It's what they would have grown up doing, what they would have been accustomed to. And there's some clues in the Gospels that they were having that type of meal. So with that in mind, let me give you a little overview. Maybe some of you have even attended a Passover Seder before. Let me give you like a brief run through. What happens for a Jewish Passover Seder meal? It starts off, the head of the household He proclaims a a blessing, and then he drinks the first cup of wine. There would be four cups throughout the evening. Talk about those later. After this, there would be a ceremonial hand washing. And as a side note, that's probably when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. After this, food was brought in, starting with an appetizer consisting of vegetables dipped in salt water. The salt water representing the tears of slavery in Egypt. This was followed by the telling of the Exodus story. If there were any kids present, it would be very question and answer where the kids would basically ask, why is this night different from all the other nights? And they would tell the Exodus story. Followed this would be the second cup of wine. And then would come time to break bread. The head of house would, would stand, take three pieces of unleavened bread, matzah, and he'd, break, he'd say blessing and then break them and then distribute them for everyone to eat. Some of the bread would be dipped in bowls filled with bitter herbs, again, to represent the bitterness of slavery. And then finally, then, would come the meal. Like, all that's just before the meal. And then comes the, finally the feast, which was roasted lamb, sacrificed at the temple. After the meal, they blessed and drank the third cup of wine. This is followed by the singing of the Hallel. That's, these are a series of six psalms in the Old Testament, Psalms 113 through 118. And the meal would finally be concluded after all this with the drinking of the fourth and final cup of wine. Now, we can't be dogmatic here, but there are some clues that indicate that here in this passage, Jesus and the disciples were observing this traditional Passover Seder meal. You've got the ceremonial washing, several cups of wine, pronouncements of blessing, breaking of bread, and seemingly the right food. This gives us a pretty natural place to put verse 22. That's our verse, verse 22. It would take place after the second cup of wine, but before the meal, when the host would stand up, take the unleavened bread, pronounce a blessing, break it, and then give it to everyone in attendance to eat. And that's exactly what verse 22 says. That's, That's pretty typical. Verse 22, while they were eating, that'd be the appetizer, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them. 
So that's that's very typical. That there's nothing out of the ordinary about that. This would have taken place in every Jewish household that Passover. The whole meal, it's very scripted. And so that that's very normal. However, what happens next is not normal. Jesus goes off the script because he says something. He says something new, something not part of that traditional meal. He takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it. Then he says something. What does he say? Verse 22. He said, take it. This is my body. In Matthew, Jesus includes the explicit command to eat it. And in Luke, he also says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. These words would not have been spoken by any Jew that Passover. Jesus was saying something new here, something different. And our question now is, what does he mean? What exactly is he saying here? There's been a lot of debate throughout the ages. Like I said earlier, some people have literally been killed because of their differing view of what he means here. And we're not going to take it that far, but still, we want to know what, what did he mean. What's he trying to communicate with this bread? We're starting with the bread. What does he mean when he says, this is my body? We're going to dive in to find out. And to start off, we have to ask, first, was Jesus being literal? Is the bread literally his body? Hopefully, it's obvious to you that the answer is no. Jesus was not being literal. The, the bread was not literally his body. Maybe the most glaring reason is that Jesus was right there. It's kind of crazy to think that Jesus wanted the disciples to believe that the, that piece of bread magically turned into his physical flesh when he was literally right there in front of them. It's like Sinclair Ferguson says, quote, The fact that he was present with them made it unmistakably clear that these elements were symbols of Jesus himself. They were not magically transformed into something else, end quote. Even the word for body tells us something. He doesn't use the word in Greek for flesh, sarks. He uses the word for body, soma, which means your person, your being. The bread represents the life of Jesus, not his physical flesh. Jesus was developing a metaphor with these words, and he he taught in metaphors all the time. I mean, once he said, I am the door. It doesn't mean he's literally a door. It's clearly a figurative way of saying that to obtain eternal life, you must go through him. And he used many metaphors to teach something about his life and his work. He said, I am the vine, I'm a morning star, the cornerstone, a lamb, a fountain, a rock, and many more. He's not any of these things literally, but figuratively they all teach us something about his person or his work. And that's what's going on with the bread. He's using it to teach us something about his person or his work. And the fact that he uses, though, a a literal piece of bread... That too is not out of the ordinary. Many times in the Old Testament, God told the prophets to use a a physical prop or an object to teach an object lesson like a living parable. Like one time God told the prophet Jeremiah, take a, a pottery jar and gather all the elders, take them out of the city to a valley, and then in front of them, smash the jar and say, thus I will break this people. And Jeremiah used a literal jar to teach a spiritual lesson that unless Judah repented, God said he's going to break them. And that's what's going on with this bread. Jesus, he's giving a living parable, a living picture of himself. 
He used a real piece of bread because that's how we are going to access it and remember him all these years later. But Jesus is not the bread. The bread is not Jesus. Scripture never teaches anywhere in any way that the bread in, in any way transforms into the, the body, the presence of Christ. He didn't say, do this to sacrifice me. He said, do this in remembrance of me. This is a memorial meal. Now the next question is, that being the case, what was Jesus teaching with this metaphor of, of the bread? What, what's he signifying still by saying, this is my body? What, what, is, what does he mean? What's he trying to teach? That's a real question. And to answer that, this is where an understanding of, of the broader context of Mark and the Gospels, and even the whole Bible comes into play. And I want you to humor me because I want you to see this for yourself with your own eyes. So follow along. I'm going to take you on a little study of bread in the Bible, like a theology of bread in the Bible. At first, it's useful to know that throughout Scripture, God himself uses bread as a symbol for life, which makes perfect sense. Bread is like that most basic staple food. Civilizations have risen or fallen based on their their bread count. I mean, if you have bread, you've got life. If you don't, you starve. It's all over. So, for example, after the Exodus, right after the people get in the wilderness, and, and already they start to starve. There's nothing in the wilderness. And they cry out to God, and what does God do? Gives them bread. Exodus 16, verse 4, God says, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. He gave them manna, sustenance. Just enough for one day, though. He was their daily bread. There's obvious symbolism behind this act. God was showing them that he is their source of life. He's the one who's going to feed them and sustain them. Every day, they need him for life. He is their source of Life. That's true physically, but he's trying to show them this is also true spiritually. And that's precisely how we see bread used as a symbol in Mark's gospel. You probably haven't picked up on it, but in Mark especially, there's like a running motif of bread. If you want, you can turn back or think back to Mark chapter 6. This is Jesus on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee teaching a crowd, giving them words of life. Come evening, though, the disciples, they want to send the crowd away because they're hungry. And it's time for them to get something to eat. And what are they going to do? They only have five loaves and two fish. But they fail to realize that with them is the bread of life. So Jesus gathers the crowd, makes them sit down, and he takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it And he gives it to them. And they all ate and were satisfied. And 5,000 people, at least 5,000 men, were fed that day. Many more, actually. And 12 baskets were picked up of leftovers. The crowd was predominantly Jewish. So if you want to press the number 12, it's showing that Jesus is the source of life for the Jews. He is their life, their sustainer, their provider. He's the only one that can satisfy their souls. That's true physically. But again, he's doing that to show them this is also true, more important, spiritually. And after this, guess what happens? It happens again. Turn to Mark chapter 8. There's another feeding. Mark chapter 8. Jesus was on the eastern shore, now in mostly Gentile territory. There's got a crowd of 4,000. They've got nothing to eat. The disciples, they're still clueless. They're like, hey, where are we going to get all this bread? 
We can't feed these people. They again fail to realize that with them is the bread of life. This time they have seven loaves. So Jesus, he takes them, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. And once again, they all ate and were satisfied. This time there were seven baskets of leftovers, and if you press that, it shows that Jesus is also the source of life for the Gentiles. Jews, Gentiles, he's life. He's life to them. After this, Jesus got on a boat, crossed the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, but they forgot to pack a lunch. Look at verse 14. If you're in Mark 8, look at verse 14. It says, And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have any, and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. I mean, there's all that leftovers, but they didn't take any. They just took one loaf. And now they're hungry, and one loaf is not enough for 12 men to eat. But Jesus, he's not concerned about lunch. They just had a run-in with some Pharisees a little bit before this. So he's actually wanting to teach them a spiritual lesson. So he says this, the next verse, verse 15. He says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Whereas bread is a symbol for life, Leaven is often a symbol for sin or corruption. And the immorality of Herod and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, it's like leaven. It's, it's wicked and it will spread. If unchecked, it will spread and it will overtake you. So don't even let a little bit in. Don't tolerate even a little sin and hypocrisy in your life. The disciples, though, they, they don't get it. Verse 16. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. They misunderstood that, that Jesus was giving a physical lesson. So they're like, wait, is there something wrong with Pharisee bread or like Roman bread? Should we only eat Jewish bread? Like, what's the deal? They don't get that Jesus, he's teaching a spiritual lesson. He says they need to beware sin and corruption, hypocrisy from the Pharisees. And instead, they need to feast on him, the bread of life. They needed him. So Jesus, he fills them in. Look at verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, Twelve. So they remembered. When I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Don't you get it? Don't you see the point of these miracles? What were they showcasing? It was never about the bread. It was about Jesus. Jesus was using the physical bread to teach that he is what? He's the bread of life. And he can feed everyone. He can give life to everyone. That's true physically, but more importantly, it's true spiritually. He is the only fountain of spiritual satisfaction. Do you get it? Bread is our life. Jesus is the bread. Jesus is our life, our source of eternal life. I want you to stay with me and turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Again, I want you on purpose, I want you to see this with your own eyes, to develop and unfold in Scripture yourself. This will be the last place we go. John 6 is going to drive it home, though. John chapter 6. And while you're turning, 
I'll give you a fun fact. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, you know that, city of David. Do you know what Bethlehem means in Hebrew? Beit means house. Lehem means bread. Bethlehem, house of bread. Not a coincidence. Anyway, John chapter 6. It takes us back to the feeding of the 5,000. So we're going back to that first feeding. All those people, they saw the sign. And they understood Jesus performed a miracle. So much so that verse 14 says some thought he was the messianic prophet. Verse 15 says some wanted to take him by force and make him king. Right then and there. But Jesus eluded them because he knew what was in their hearts. Verse 26. John 6. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Here you have it. It was never about the bread. The bread was merely a sign pointing to something else, some other food, a spiritual food. And he tells them, you've got to work for this eternal food, which Jesus will give to them. So how do you work for it? Verse 28. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you Believe in him whom he has sent. There's actually no works involved. Simply faith. Faith in whom? In the one who's come from God. The people have a hard time believing that Jesus came from God. Verse 30. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. This is pretty amazing. They just witnessed Jesus multiply bread for 5,000 people. They, they saw the sign. But they're saying, now that's, that's not enough. Like, if we're really going to believe that you came from heaven, I mean, look, Moses, he fed everybody from bread. It just came from heaven. And if we're going to believe you came from heaven, you're going to have to top that. You're going to have to outdo that. That's, that's what they're saying. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Again, it's, it's not about the literal bread. It's not about Moses. It's about God who gives spiritual bread, eternal life to the world They still don't get it. They think now he's talking about like a superfood. Like, give us that bread that feeds everybody. We'll take it. They still don't get it. So Jesus tells them now, just straight up. Are you ready? Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is the bread. He's the food that endures to eternal life. Verse 38, he came down from heaven, from God. He's like the manna, and he feeds all the people. If you just pick him up, if you believe in him, God will give you life, eternal life, and you'll never be spiritually hungry again. But those Jews just couldn't get over what Jesus was saying. 
Verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They read him loud and clear. They just didn't like it. They didn't believe. But Jesus continues to testify. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So the manna didn't cut it. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Look, he's being pretty clear. The Jews made the mistake of missing the spiritual lesson behind the physical object. The manna wasn't magical. It also couldn't save them. They ate it. They died. It, it, it wasn't good enough. But Jesus, he could save them. Because he's going to give his body, his self, his life, verse 51, for the life of the world. Jesus is going to die so that they might live if they believe in him. But they still don't get it. Their hearts were hardened. So Jesus gives them another dose. Final message, verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats, my, so he who eats me, and he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. Seeing that God's law forbid cannibalism and the drinking of blood, how hard is it to figure out that Jesus is being figurative here? He's not asking them to to devour him right then and there. He's already revealed the key that unlocks all of these words, that he is the bread of life. He's the source of true, eternal life. Just as eating and drinking are necessary for physical life, the point he's making is that he is necessary for spiritual life, life with God. So therefore, you have to eat him. You have to abide with him. You have to believe in him if you are to spiritually live forever. Like it says in verse 63, these are spiritual words. But not all of them in the crowd were ready to accept it. Last verse here, verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They left. But verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see the contrast. Peter got it. He knew Jesus. He's the bread of life. He's the one who's come down from heaven to give life to the world. And you eat that by believing in him. 
and he was ready. Peter, Peter knew the problem. Peter understood the problem. Do you, do you get the problem that we have? Our problem is death. Death is man's ultimate problem. And we're talking about physical death, yes, but even more so spiritual death, that permanent separation from God. And the cause of our death is sin, for the wages of sin is death. We are all already spiritually dead, separated from God because of our sin. And when we physically die, we are forever spiritually separated from God. That's called eternal death. And it sounds bad. Sounds like a real problem. So what can we do about our death problem? Well, nothing. I mean, we're dead. Dead people can't solve problems. There's nothing we can do. We are just in need of life. We're starving and we need some bread. Those in the world, they turn to so many other things to distract them from this problem or things that are are not bread to try and satisfy them. But it doesn't work. It's not bread. It cannot give them life. But instead, the desperate the needy, the hungry. They see their spiritual need. They realize their lost condition. They understand there's no solution in themselves. It's like you're wandering in the wilderness. You're starving to death. Your only hope is that bread would just rain down from heaven. That God would somehow feed you and give you life. And you know what? He has. God has sent down his son, the bread of life, to earth, to give life to all who would consume him, to all who would believe in him. Jesus would do this by giving his life for your life. He would die so that you would not die, but live. The result of his death is your life. The question is, will you receive him? Will you eat him? Will you believe in him? And that is what the Lord's Supper is all about. Turn back to Mark chapter 14. I'm going to bring this home here. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed, but back in the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, Jesus performed the same sequence of actions with the same words as he does in the Lord's Supper. He took the loaves, he blessed them, he broke them, and he gave them. Both feedings does the same thing, same words. He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. And look again at verse 22 of Mark 14. Just so you don't think I'm making up all these connections. What does Jesus do in this final meal? Same words, same sequence. Verse 22, while they were eating, he took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. In the Greek, all the same words. With this event, the minds of the disciples should have flashed back to that time in John chapter 6. They should have connected the dots to get what Jesus was saying. And we can do that now. So what is Jesus saying? What, What does he mean with this bread being his body? Well, it signifies his life. Bread is a symbol for life. Jesus connects the bread with his body, his life. He is our eternal life. Like it says in Luke, this bread, it's given for you. His life will be given for you. His life is tied with his death. 
just like the bread is tied with the cup. The bread and the cup, they go together. The bread is the life of Christ, and the cup is the death of Christ. You don't get one without the other. But through him, through what he would do on the cross in his resurrection, we get life if we receive him, we eat him, we believe in him. Even though you're dead, you can live forever, spiritually reconciled to God. And that's what we are affirming in the Lord's Supper. When Jesus gave his disciples that little piece of bread, it was as if he was saying this, John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? When you take and you eat, you're saying, I believe this. John 6, 47. He, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. In the Lord's Supper that Jesus institutes here, there's nothing magical about the bread. It doesn't change. It is not literally the, the, the physical presence of Jesus. It is rather a living picture, a symbol of his life from God, eternal life that has rained down from heaven, given over for you. When you see the bread, you are to recall the life of Jesus, and that if you accept him, if you believe in him, even though you're dead, you can be brought back to spiritual life, reconciled to God, and you'll live forever with him. And Jesus sets up this perpetual meal like this so that every future disciple is constantly confronted with the question, do you believe this? Do you really believe this? Do you believe that Jesus came down from heaven? Do you believe that he's the son of God? Do you believe that he gave his life over on the cross to pay for your sins and to, to bring you to new life? Do you believe that he is the only answer to spiritual death, the only source for eternal life? If your answer is yes, then eat the bread. And by eating, you are confessing your faith that I believe. That's what you're doing when you eat the little piece of bread. You're saying, I believe in Jesus, the bread of life. There's nothing magical or special about eating the tiny piece of bread, but and going through the motions means nothing to God. You have to, in your heart, understand your sin problem, recognize who Jesus is and what he did for you, and then appropriate his work on the cross to yourself through faith by believing in him. This is a serious calling, to believe in Jesus. It's more serious than people think, because talk is cheap. It's not just saying, yeah, I believe. This has to be a real submission of yourself and your heart to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Your whole life is given to him. It's no coincidence that in John chapter 6, we just read a while ago, you know how that passage ends? It ends with a reference to Judas, who would betray Jesus. Judas claimed to believe but he was not willing to give up his entire life to gain the bread of life. That's what it takes. Judas was satisfied with other bread, the bread of this world, and hence he was excluded from this part of the Last Supper. And what about you? Taking communion after church means nothing if your heart is not truly given over to him. Are you willing to forsake self 
in order to gain him. If so, then eat, remember, and live. And the Lord is so wise, isn't he, to use bread. Because from then on, the disciples, they could never look at another meal the same ever again. They could never look at a piece of bread without remembering that final night with Jesus and how he transformed it in a way to remember him. And that's what God wants. He wants the memory of his son, who he is and what he did, to be with us forever. And we need to remember as often as we eat and drink, which is every day. Now, speaking of drinking, we haven't said anything about the cup. What's that all about, the cup, which is his blood given for you? What, what's that? It's not the same as the bread, but they go together. What does it mean? Well, if you haven't figured it out already, we'll be coming back next week, unless you want a two-hour sermon, to find out what that is all about. The bread and the cup, they're each on their own, too significant to shortchange. They deserve our full attention. So we'll come back next week, find out what the cup is all about. But for now, set your mind on the bread, Jesus bread of life. Believe in him. He's the only one who can bring you from death to life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we we thank you for your mercy. For we were lost and we were starving in the wilderness and there's nothing we could do. But by your mercy, you sent that bread from heaven down for us to feed us forever and that the bread is your son, your son, the Lord Christ Jesus, given over unto death where he would pay for our sins on the cross that we might live. We thank you for this gift of life, and we pray that we now appropriate it through through faith. We believe in him and all that he is and all that he did. And by that you promise you will give us life forever. We thank you for this. We remember this now. We exalt you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.